And welcome to The Briefing Room. I'm Devin Dwyer here in Washington with Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. Thanks so much for joining us on this Thursday. We are counting down to the midterms. More on that late, later, nine, 19 days. wonder which day of the week uh, it was. Which day of the week is it? It's getting like, a little oh blurry, gosh, but we are 19 right? days away. It's hard to believe. Uh, we have a big show in store, and we have much more coverage ahead on the big vote. Tune in next Tuesday. Uh, but today we're talking foreign policy. We're talking about the big story uh, of the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, that Saudi journalist, uh, American uh, resident, also a columnist for The Washington Post, who has stirred up uh, quite an international firestorm. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, just back from Saudi Arabia, a visit to Turkey as well. He briefed President Trump this morning on the investigation. Here's what he had to say just after talking to the president. We made clear to them that we take this matter with respect to Mr. Khashoggi very seriously. Uh, they made clear to me that they too understand the serious nature of the disappearance of Mr. Khashoggi. Uh, they also assured me that they will conduct a complete, thorough uh, investigation of all of the facts surrounding Mr. Khashoggi and that they will do so in a timely fashion. I told President Trump this morning that um, we ought to give them a few more days to complete that so that so the Secretary of State there asking for a little bit more time for, for Saudi to get this report together. The Vice President just moments ago, Mike Pence, also weighing in on this, taking a slightly different line. Take a listen to his reaction to where things stand. If what has been alleged occurred, uh, if uh, an, an innocent person lost their life at the hands of violence, that's to be condemned. If a journalist in particular lost their life, uh, at the hands of violence. That's an affront to a free and independent press around the world. Uh, and there will be consequences. All right, a tougher line from Mike Pence. This investigation underway. What will the consequences be? What facts will come out? Let's bring in our foreign correspondent, uh, Molly Hunter, who's over in Turkey, uh, reporting on the latest of this story. Molly, great to have you with us. What do we know about this investigation so far that's being undertaken by the Saudis? Um, and is it your view that it, that it could be a credible investigation? Devin, hey, good afternoon. Basically, all we know about that Saudi investigation is what we just heard from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. So we're outside here. Uh, you can't see it because it's dark, but we're outside the consular residence in Istanbul. And essentially, as I understand it, there are two investigations going on. So there's the Turkish investigation. We've seen forensic experts go in here. We saw a police drone go over. And we've been getting, of course, all of those leaks in Turkish press. We even heard from the Turkish prosecutor today who said the investigation is credible and well within the law. But as far as the Saudi investigation, I know nothing. I haven't seen any uh, Saudi investigators on the ground. No one in hazmat or forensic suits going into the consulate or the consular residence. And everything that we've heard, we've heard from Secretary of, of State Pompeo that it's going to be timely and thorough. And of course, from President Trump, who said that MBS personally promised him this investigation would happen. As far as credibility, the Saudis haven't said anything, you guys, for the last two weeks, except that he walked out the door. Jamal Khashoggi walked out the door on his own after entering the consulate on October 2nd. And I think everyone is pretty sure at this point that that's not true. Yeah, it does seem like, according to some reporting just in from The New York Times, the Saudis may be willing, uh, they may be getting ready to walk back that statement that he did, in fact, uh, end up getting killed inside the consulate. So we're, I know you're closely tracking that, Molly. But um, let's talk a little well, more, more Devin, about what actually, evidence. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say on that report, like for a second, let's actually game it out, right? So 
if there's a fall guy, right, if they find whether it's a rogue killer or if they identify someone to take the hit, right? So this is all speculation, but someone takes the hit for the Saudi Arabians. Uh, MBS gets off fairly scot-free. That means the Turks maintain all of this leverage. So somewhere in the back rooms, whether it's here in Istanbul or in Ankara, uh, that means the Turks are going to do pretty well from both the U.S. and the Saudis, possibly investment, investment they need badly here. And then all three go back to kind of business as usual. The U.S.-Saudi arms deal stays in place. Um, and in all of that, we've lost a journalist. But I think that's one of the scenarios that we're all grappling with here on the ground, Evan. Yeah, it certainly is, Molly. And uh, it does seem if the president's comments, President Trump's comments are any indication, they are preparing to talk about some sort of a rogue killing here as sort of an off-ramp. Um, but let's bring in Louis Martinez, our reporter over at the Pentagon, uh, for perhaps uh, a different angle on this story, which is making it particularly complicated for the Trump administration and the Saudis to come to some sort of resolution. Louis, um, thanks for joining us. Give us a sense of what's at stake here for the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. We um, have continually heard about how important it is, how consequential it is, and that this, uh, this matter sort of is putting all of that potentially at risk. No, you're right, Devin. This is a really complicating factor for the United States because Saudi Arabia is arguably one of the biggest partners for the United States in the region, in the Middle East. Um, and it comes at a time when the United States is working hard to contain Iran. Uh, we always talk here at the Pentagon about how Iran, ha Iran has this malign behavior. What does that mean? They're influencing Hezbollah. They're influencing potential uh, terrorist groups throughout the region. Um, they're, they're sponsoring the Houthis in Yemen. Um, and the United States has been wanting to counter that for years. And now the administration has this initiative in place. And the biggest proponent of countering Iran in the region has been Saudi Arabia. So how do you do it when you have the situation where you have the Khashoggi situation, it's complicating what you heard Pompeo say outside of the White House. He called it this long strategic partnership. Uh, he didn't say it once. He said it multiple times, actually, outside the White House. Um, and that's part of this, because this is a really deep relationship the United States has with Saudi Arabia. Um, and this is uh, something that's very complicating, because how does the United States move forward? Because you Hear, you hear this conflicting language from Vice President Pence and from others uh, talking that something must be done if, in fact, the Saudis were responsible. But at the same time, how do you balance that with America's national security interests? And quickly, Louis, what could they do? The president has ruled out ending the big arms deal with Saudi Arabia, weapons sales, over $100 billion. But is there anything on the table that you've seen or heard that they could do as something as a penalty here to Saudi? You know, it's very unclear exactly what it is that the president can do. Some people have mentioned sanctions, but what does that really mean when it comes to Saudi Arabia? Because uh, they've already said that if something does happen, that they'll kind of retaliate. Uh, well, we know how they can retaliate. They're, they're in control of OPEC. And so the oil flow to the United States, the president has a, a very businesslike and economic mind, right? And so when I think if the Saudis play up to that, um, as a response for retaliation, that's a, another complicating factor that he doesn't want to get involved in. So I think the president's options are kind of limited. Uh, he may file a demarche. You know, that could be, that's a, a State Department language for an international diplomatic complaint with the Saudis. Um, they could raise uh, the voices, as we've already seen. Some of the European countries have gotten together to criticize Saudi Arabia's behavior in this incident. Maybe he could join that um, and pre present the United International Front in critiquing uh, Saudi Arabia. But in terms of what he could actually do, it sounds to me like it's very limited, considering how much he often plays up uh, this business deal, this deal for $110 billion worth of arms over the next decade uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia. 
All right, Louis Martinez at the Pentagon. Thanks so much, Louis. And Molly Hunter in Turkey, before we let you go, um, we've also been hearing, ABC News has also been hearing from some friends, family close to Khashoggi. There is a human at the center of this tragedy who apparently, very apparently, lost his life. What, what are we hearing from, from those close to him? Devin, that's right, and that's so important that we remind people at every turn. I know the investigation is fascinating. All of the diplomatic kind of ties and balancing act in the region are super fascinating, but it's so important. I'm so glad you just reminded everyone that at the center of this is a man, a journalist who believed in free press and who looks like it likely lost his life. Um, but we did hear from a guy named uh, Turin Killis. He uh, was one of uh, Khashoggi's dearest friends. And when Khashoggi went into the consulate on October 2nd, he gave his fiancée uh, two numbers. Uh, and Turin was one of them. And our uh, Ian panel spoke with him last night. And I just want to read a little bit of what he said. So he talked about how as soon as he got the call uh, that Khashoggi was missing, he made some calls. He called officials and he asked what was going on. And he was told that he was dead. And they said, we have audio on this. We know all the details about what transpired. He was killed in a barbaric way. And we have other various evidence on this. Now, he told Ian that he walked, apparently, Jamal Khashoggi walked into the consulate. He was told to sign a document. He refused, and then he was killed. But this squares with all of these really gruesome, really grisly details that have been leaking out into the press uh, for the last two weeks. All right, Molly Hunter in Turkey, thank you so much, Molly, for your reporting and for joining us uh, very late there in Turkey. Thanks so much. And uh, Mary Alice, to bring you into this conversation, uh, we've been talking about the human side of this story yeah. as well. And fascinating to see today in the Washington Post a final op-ed column by Jamal Khashoggi himself. It was really powerful to read. His editors had said that they had waited, hoping that they could review it with him, but they're now coming to terms with the fact that that's likely not going to be the case. And it reminded everyone of what this man dedicated his life to, dedicated his life to the freedom of press, and writing there in his final column that he's worried the Arab world is continuing to crack down on journalists, continuing to crack down on on any value of the freedom of the press. So really, with his final words, challenging the U.S. government to continue to be an example in the world and continue to push forward precedent of American values, um, American values that have always valued the freedom of the press. But obviously, we're raising a lot of questions this week about whether or not the U.S. government is going to go to the mat on this one. Certainly, uh, we will stay on top of it here and check out Jamal Khashoggi's uh, final column uh, at WashingtonPost.com. Uh, moving on now, we are here in the briefing room. We haven't seen Sarah Sanders uh, in quite some time. She's held only two White House press briefings since Labor Day. Uh, Should we change the name? Maybe we need to change our show. <laughs> uh, the last briefing was October 3rd. But let me tell you, uh, Mary Alice, you've looked at the numbers as well. The president himself has been on a historic media blitz, unlike anything ABC News has been able to find in comparison and over the last 11 days, taken something more than 300 questions a number of pool sprays, uh, impromptu press conferences, South Lawn media avails. Uh, our John Carl crunched the numbers. Uh, to give you a little flavor, uh, if you haven't heard enough from President Trump, here's a little mashup of all the media appearances the president has had in just the past week. Take a look. Any other questions? Any other questions? What? Any questions? Please? We're going to do whatever we can do to get it slowed down. I feel very comfortable, yeah. It was incredibly powerful. You've seen the disruption. We will miss you. We'll be speaking all the time, but we will miss you nevertheless. And you've done a fantastic job, and I want to thank you very much. You. As you know, we've just gotten tremendous polling numbers. The farmers have been so terrific, and they produce 
Great product. I think the Republicans are going to do great in the midterms. They come in illegally and they use children. We have a country that's doing probably better economically than it's ever done before. It's going to have a huge positive impact. I hear they have thousands of people lined up, and so we are in a little bit of a quagmire. We're going to leave nothing uncovered. Okay, what else? We'll get down to the bottom of it. We want a big step where we took away that ridiculous deal that was made by the previous administration. If they knew about it, that would be bad. Maybe these could have been rogue killers. I would like to do something where we could maybe uh, look at other things. I think it's an insult to the American public. All right, a flavor of the unprecedented media blitz. In fact, one official, White House official, told us, Mary Alice, uh, they see no need to hold press briefings, press conferences by the staff, the president himself taking so many questions. Um, striking, used to, the press used to be the enemy of the people. Now he's sort of using them. What's behind this? The president said that he was not going to take the blame if Republicans lost the House. And yet the president, with all these media appearances, continues to make these midterms about him. There's no way around it. He wants these midterms to be about him. I think he thinks he is the best uh, face of the Republican Party. He obviously is the face of the Republican Party and wants his answer, his final word, as we go into this election day. Yeah, it does seem like he's trying to flood the zone, take the bull by the horns, drive this thing home. There's been some more movement. Metaphors. Yeah, I, he's, 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 he's certainly seen some progress. He yeah. does seem buoyed by what we've seen in the Senate. Absolutely. And I think he feels like he's winning here. He wants to take advantage of that. And and going strong and going in his style is the way that Republicans are going to win. All right. There are only 19 days, as you know better than anybody, Mary Alice, until we reach those historic midterm elections. Uh, we're tracking them here at ABCnews.com. We have a team out in the field tracking some of the closest races, including today out in North Dakota. That's where there is a very tight Senate race. Heidi Heitkamp fighting uh, to keep her seat, the Democratic senator uh, out there. And that's where we find our Cheyenne Hazlitt. She's been reporting on the ground today there. Cheyenne, great to see you. Uh, give us the mood on the ground. There's a big debate tonight, 19 days away, between Heidi Heitkamp and Republican uh, Kevin Kramer. Yeah, and people here know that it's 19 days away. Um, as you mentioned, Heidi, Senator Heidi Heitkamp is a Democratic incumbent here in a state, and she uh, won by only 3,000 votes in 2012. It was a tight race then, and uh, this year she's facing Trump-endorsed Republican Representative Kevin Kramer uh, in a state that the president won by 36 percentage points in 2016. So uh, the issues that I have talked to voters about the most here are in this heavy agricultural state, uh, tariffs in the economy, as well as health care. Healthcare certainly a uh, top uh, topic in many parts of the country. Um, in the state you're in, North Dakota, Cheyenne, also a brewing controversy that you've been reporting on uh, involving voter ID and the voter ID law in North Dakota. Tell us a little bit about that. There's a strict new rule just in place now for the general election there that has a significant impact on Native American voters. Yeah, yeah, this new voter ID law has uh, created some chaos here, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court just last week. But essentially, um, as I mentioned, Senator Heitkamp won this state by just about 3,000 votes in 2012, and a key, key block for her was the Native American vote, and that uh, the Native American voters here do feel that this voter ID law suppresses their votes. So what this new law does is it requires that voters show up to the poll with a, a state or tribal-issued ID with a residential address on it. The problem that poses for Native Americans is that they're in really rural districts here, uh, states here 
areas here. I'm in Fort Yates, right outside of the Standing Rock Reservation, and they often don't use residential addresses. They instead use P.O. boxes. That's where they get their mail. That's where they get their packages. And so uh, they don't have these residential addresses on their IDs uh, when they go to vote. Um, and uh, the percentages now under the new law of people who do, Native Americans who do have this information, is about 35%. Um, so they feel that their votes are going to be suppressed and that it's in a really important, important year where thousands of votes, a few thousand votes, could really make the difference in the Senate race here and uh, in who controls the Senate nationwide. So um, I spoke to a voter earlier who, who told me a little bit about why he feels that his vote especially matters. and. Um, and you can hear what he said. Why they are restricting us to vote is like unconstitutional because we have a right to vote despite where we live. We're all human, you know, and we, we all, uh, you know, want the right people in these offices. So uh, we need to vote the right people in. Yeah, so and so um, what they're trying to do here, they hope to really galvanize voters um, that this Supreme Court decision uh, will actually get people out. I talked to one tribal council member just inside this building who said that they've been fighting government since 1492 and that they hope that an attempt to potentially what they see as an attempt to suppress their votes will actually get people out to the polls instead. And, and they're working on producing more state IDs and uh, tribal letterhead that can get voters the, the documents that they need by November 6th. All right, great work out there, Cheyenne Haslett, for us out in North Dakota. Big debate tonight. Uh, we will look forward to seeing your reporting tomorrow in The Note at abcnews.com. Uh, Cheyenne, thank you so much for that report. Uh, and Mary Alice, it, fascinating to me, not just in North Dakota, but a number of states that you've been tracking that have, have these new voter ID laws in place. Republicans say they need to verify the voter, you know, voter databases with the people coming to the polls, but it certainly does seem to be making it harder for people in North Dakota, Georgia, elsewhere to actually cast their ballots. Yeah, it's sketchy. We have Republicans that are putting in place laws that seem to be specifically targeting minority voters, and that's worrisome from Tennessee to Georgia to North Dakota, especially like Cheyenne said, I think she was exactly right. We're expecting these races to be really close, and a few thousand votes could make all the difference. In Georgia, we're talking about 53,000 people who had their voter registrations put on pause. Uh, the significant majority of that were African American voters, and that can make a huge difference in that state. We're seeing a national trend, and it has a lot of people worried. Uh, it certainly does, and we'll stay on it. You'll stay on it. The team will stay on it here uh, as well in the, in the uh, two weeks ahead. Uh, finally today, the president uh, as well dipping his toe into this fight uh, over minority voters. Today, taking on the issue of immigration again, uh, attacking uh, Mexicans in two sets of tweets this morning and those from uh, Latin America traveling up into this country. Uh, he says he's watching the Democrat Party uh, advocate for open borders, uh, and he has threatened in this case, uh, in the second tweet, to stop all aid payments to those countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, if these uh, the immigrants continuing to flood the border come in. And in fact, as you see there, Mary Alice, he's threatening not only to shut down the border, but to send the military there. Two things strike me. One, his policy doesn't seem to be working. We are seeing record numbers flood the border right now. Uh, but the president also seems to be throwing a log on the fire here for an issue that he knows animates his base. Animate
updates his base, but this is no longer the primaries. These are general elections coming up. And we know that across the board in the country, the idea of a wall was always unpopular. 57% of Americans were not in favor of a wall. When you get to other issues from this administration, like family separations, the numbers are even worse. Um, this It's a risk for the president to be talking about it. It might animate his base, but it animates the other side as well. And we are seeing tight Senate races in Arizona and Texas, and the president could, uh, these, these lines from the president could backfire. And it's certainly going to be closely watched in states like Arizona, where there's a tight race. Texas, we know he's headed there on Monday for a rally for Ted Cruz. Immigration, a big issue there as well. Uh, so something to keep an eye on. Uh, finally, today we have uh, in this midterm season an unusual endorsement uh, of sorts. A, I'll leave it to the sports experts to explain the significance. But out in West Virginia, the West Virginia Senate race, uh, where, um, where Joe Manchin is trying to keep his seat, he got a big boost today from none other than a god in the football uh, universe, Mary A legend. A few legends. A few legends. All right, let's toss to the ad and take a look. Joe and I grew up together in West Virginia, and he never forgets where he came from. He loves our state. He's dedicated his whole life to West Virginia. I swear that there's no one that loves the people of West Virginia more than Joe Manchin. I don't have a better friend or know a better person than Joe Manchin. My friend Joe works with Republicans and Democrats to get things done. And I'm proud to tell people that Joe Manchin is my U.S. Senator. I'm Joe Manchin, and I approve this message for all West Virginians. All right, and our resident sports expert, Adam is. Kelsey, is here. Oh, a football on. fan as well. We don't have a metaphor. Pinch hitting for Devin. We, we have go. Adam who Ouch. can explain. Ouch. <laughs> Um, yeah, so what we've got here, three West Virginia legends. Uh, Nick Saban, obviously, coaching at the University of Alabama now. Senate race down there, or the races down there in West general. Virginia, he's from West Virginia. Okay. So the races down in Alabama, not as interesting. So he's going back home to West Virginia to dip his, dip his toe into the water. Um, but a, him, alongside Bob Huggins, who happens to be the highest paid public employee in West Virginia, wow. head basketball coach for West Virginia U University. And then Jerry West, the logo. That's his silhouette on the NBA logo, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. The thing that's interesting to me, if I may for a second, yeah. is that we've heard all this story about Colin Kaepernick sticking to sports. People have said, stay out of politics, stay out of these issues. So it's interesting to see Democratic senator, somebody who's trying to court independent voters and Republicans in West Virginia, having folks from the universe of sports now dipping their toe, like I said, into politics. And how big a deal is this in West Virginia? I mean, these are two pretty big sports figures. I mean, it's a nice ad for him. Joe Manchin's ahead it's, right now it's in most a good, polls, It's but. a good ad. You know, that's a state that, that the president won by double digits, and yet Joe Manchin, a Democrat, uh, seems to be okay at this point. Polls have him uh, slightly ahead. He's not seen as one of the most vulnerable sitting Democrats. There are others across the country in much more trouble. And I think part of that is that he plays to the middle. He knows his state. He's also been writing these op-eds where he's co-authoring them with Republicans. Uh, he, he knows how to win there, and it's, it's looking like he might be able to eke this one out, too. All right, a big boost today for Joe Manchin. Uh, and that's all for us here on The Briefing Room. Great to have Adam jumping in. For Mary Alice Parks, Anytime. I'm Devin Dwyer. Follow the latest on these elections at abcnews.com and on ABC News app on your phone. And join us tomorrow for The Briefing Room and next Tuesday for The Big Vote. We'll see you next time.